This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. My name is Darren, one of the pastors here, and I have a, uh, an awkward question that was asked this week in the uh, free press. I don't know if you guys know who Barry Weiss is. I, I, oh. So there are some journalists out there in the last few years that uh, the, the separation of the wheat and the chaff, right? The truth and the nonsense. And, and, and Barry was one of those that she may not be a Christian. She certainly doesn't believe a lot like we believe. But the one thing she does believe is in truth and trying to find what truth is. And here's what I love about that. Uh, when you're seeking truth and not a narrative, it always leads to Jesus. You might get the scenic route, but you're going to go to Jesus if you're looking for truth. But so Barry asks a, uh, an uncomfortable question, which is, can you find God in a bikini? I know, I know. Not, not the reason you think. So, so here's, she was writing a story on um, a thing that's happening in L.A., and Mexico City and other places, and it's this, I, this thing called Secular Sabbath, okay? Secular Sabbath was founded by uh, a, a woman who grew up on a, on, on a hippie farm somewhere, and the whole idea is that in, the, in a time where uh, religion, religious attendance is going down, people are still seeking God, and so this lady has talked people into paying thousands and thousands of dollars to join her secular Sabbath organization. Her name is Genevieve Meadow Jenkins. And what you see when she does this, and she actually says, this is the purpose of our Sabbath, is that, um, make sure I've got the right one here. Yeah, right here. She says, the purpose of our secular Sabbath sessions is to connect her couple hundred members to a higher power at a time when religious attendance and religious services across the country is dwindling. I hope they connect with a sense of purpose through God or something greater than just themselves and the world, she told me. Even though Americans are increasingly giving up on church, they're still looking for God. Even in a sauna with Diplo, Meadow Jenkins, who was raised uh, Jewish, she rarely gets to temple now, but she, quote, still finds God all around her. And one of her quotes was, the other day I was upset about something, and in that moment I asked God for help. In moments of vulnerability, it always does in some way come back to God. Goes on to say that she does try, of all the God thing things, she, you know, all, she's like, there's no right, there's no wrong, but of all the stuff we're seeking, it does, she tries to steer away from any connections to Western religion, specifically Christianity. And instead borrows from Eastern traditions because people are more open to it. More than anything, she wants to dispel the idea that God is uncool. So her mission statement is to make God cool, which I guess Diplo can maybe do that. She says this, in an American culture, we are so disconnected from feeling passionately about things because it's terrifying to care, she says. People are afraid to feel into spirituality. Now she goes on to say, I had to reclaim the word God sitting by the pool. Uh, she goes on, because God, listen, God felt like this man in the sky that tells you how to be, and so I was uncomfortable with the word for a long time. She talks about, uh, down here, one of the people, one of the uh, members of this group, that I technically went to church, but it was just a place that I showed up, 
And now she's a, quote, cafeteria uh, spiritualist. Picks and chooses which practices work for her. Now, we can chuckle at that, but the American church is full of that. You know what I'm saying? Ah, I like this one, don't like that one. It's like the golden corral for Jesus. I, but this is the line I wanted you to hear. I want to find God and know God in my own way, she says. I don't want anyone to tell me the quality of God or how to worship or anything. I want all that to be my own experience. Do, do you sense what she's saying? That I will not have him be Lord over me. I will be Lord over him. Back in the sauna. <laughs> and by the way, there's a couple hundred people here and they're doing some weird stuff for all intents and purposes. Chanting may or may not be narcotics involved. But here's what, do you guys know who the Diplo is? I'm just curious. This is first service. I'll bet 12 of you. Okay. That's actually more than I thought. A Diplo, DJ, hip-hop. In fact, he was famous in the last couple of weeks because he was in Burning Man, got stuck up there. He and Chris Rock hitch a ride out, trying to get out. It's Diplo. That's that guy. But here's Diplo's definition of God. Jane, you don't know who Diplo is? She's Googling Diplo. Don't Google. You won't be able to unsee. Um, He was a perfect person. He was kind. This is Diplo describing Jesus. He was kind. His ambition was to be the best person you could be. That's who he thinks Jesus' primary ambition was, just to be the best one perfect and be the best you can be. Do you understand there's actually, that's a incongruent argument, but, but listen, since his, he talks about his mom and sister passed away recently, he's been back in church, but he doesn't believe God can only be found there. A hundred percent what we would say, right? But listen to what he says. Every day is church for me. I'm always like at the club. And then he cocks his head and think that is the church because people go there to deal with their problems. He adds, anything that makes you feel like you're celebrating life is a church. Now that is the gospel according to Diplo. And what we have learned in our culture, did anybody grow up Lutheran or one of the denominations where you have to go through a catechism? Do you know what I mean? So, okay, so more than, more than know who Diplo um, But one of the things that catechism is, is here's what our church believes, here's what our denomination is, you got to go through this whole thing, take a test, put on the robe, the smells, the bells, celebrate, we're all in the club. Like, our culture has got its own form of a catechism, which parenthetically does have smells and bells. I don't know if you've seen like the sage and what some of the is happening in these places, but they've got their own version of a catechism. And what their catechism is saying to us is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it really strongly. As long as you believe it really well, then you're, gonna, then you're fine. Now, of course, that is a failed strategy uh, when I was a, a kid, I, uh, we had a frozen lake by our, our little town. And I walked out on the, I was with my bros, and I walked out on that frozen lake with 100% faith in the ice holding me. Okay? Nebraska, I am confident. My buddy's back on shore, like, Tyler, you're crazy. You're so dumb. You're and I'm literally not listening to any truth, any logic. I'm like, no, this, this ice is fine. And it was fine up until it wasn't. 
I don't know if anybody's ever fallen through a frozen lake. I mean, now they call it the cold plunge challenge, but back then it was called almost dying of hypothermia. So we were, we're I mean, in the water, I got to get my friends to bail me out. And what I, what I learned uh, later from that moment was I had strong faith in a weak foundation. It, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is if the foundation or the thing you have faith in is not strong. Biblical faith is not believing strongly no matter what. Biblical faith actually challenges us to believe not in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of what we're putting, who we're putting our faith in. Okay? That's what John 20 sets us up to see. That there is such a thing as faith that is blind, faith in nonsense, faith in just what I hope, faith in what Diplo says, which is that, hey, it worked for me, so maybe it'll work for you, but if it doesn't, you can do this other thing. Jesus doesn't offer that at all, which is great, because otherwise, we're all going to be walking out on thin eyes. You're going to be walking on things that don't have the, the strength to support you. So when you read John 20, what I want you to read it with was the idea that this is an eyewitness account. And there's plenty of work that's been done around the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that have, we have thousands of copies of this from early on. Nobody that is remotely intellectually honest questions the integrity of this text. Doesn't mean it's true, but what it does mean is that what you and I are reading today is accurate to what they had 2,000 years ago. The amount of manuscripts available are literally, when you talked about Homer's Iliad, Plato, we have thousands of copies of these that are close to when it was written. They have a couple hundred here or a dozen there. In other words, we can trust that what we have is what they had. Doesn't mean it's true, but at least we can start with the premise that this is accurate to what was written. Now I'm going to show you why I think we can trust that this eyewitness testimony is true. Early on the first day, verse one, let's read through a few of these. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and, on the, and the other disciple. I love this about John. You talk about humility and the other guy. I'm just one of the disciples here. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other, of course he squeaks this one in, but the other disciple outran him. <laughs> Peter can run his mouth, but John can run. He reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went, I love this, John stops on the outside, Peter's flying, he runs right into the tomb. There's no stopping, looking around and seeing if there's spiders, he just runs straight in. He saw, verse six, the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen, Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. 
And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary, verse 11, stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And she asked her, woman, why are you crying? And they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And he said to her, Mary. And at that moment, she turned in just hearing her name. Mark was just talking about she was hearing her identity from Jesus and that made her turn to him and know. So she turned out and cried to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And it doesn't mean just teacher, it means my teacher. Jesus said, verse 17, do not hold on to me. If you're a Bible underliner, we're going to come back to that one. For I have yet, I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us wisdom and insight into your word this morning? It's a light for us. It's a lamp for us. Your truth 2,000 years ago, your truth 10,000 years ago, your truth 10,000 years from now is still truth. Truth does not change with time. And so we embrace that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what... The world is telling us right now in many ways is as long as you believe it, it doesn't even matter if it's logical. As long as you believe it, then you're okay. With the notable exception of Christianity. But what happened, like the minute that Christ was resurrected in Matthew 28, we see that the Jewish leaders, the elders, had already begun to stir a story of what we would call fake news. They're making up a story where we're going to say that some of the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body. And you're just going to have to believe us that somehow these disciples managed to get past the Roman soldiers, managed to move this giant stone without waking him up, removed his body, somehow folded the clothes and left them behind because they clearly weren't in a hurry. Where they're being, literally, we're being, it's like being gaslit by the Jewish leaders. And so what I would like to suggest to you this morning is that what the world is saying to you and I is that the faith in this, faith in the gospel, faith in the Bible is fake news while simultaneously asking us to believe that this other idea, other ideologies in Eastern Europe, Eastern religions, Eastern philosophies like Marxism, socialism, Buddhism, all the isms in the world, those are more likely to be true than this. And I want to show you this morning that there's a difference between faith news and fake news. And what John 20 gives us is a storyline of the truth. And we get a chance this morning to look again, say, hey, this is accurate, right? Because we know it's accurate, but can we trust it? And in the few minutes we have, what I want to show you is that biblical faith, unlike cultural faith, biblical faith is irrational. 
Biblical faith is humble. Biblical faith is hopeful. Juxtapose that against most things that we're being asked right now by our culture to have faith in. It isn't rational. A man can't have a baby is not a controversial statement, okay? It's irrational. Biblical faith is rational, but I'm being asked to right, have faith in something that's not rational. It's humble, okay? Cultural faith is arrogant and it's prideful. And by the way, there's lots of religious faith that have come from not only Jewish, but strains of Christianity that are both arrogant as well. But not Jesus' faith. Jesus' faith is humble. And it's hopeful. Because one of the things about humble faith is humility means to believe the truth about myself, to believe the truth about my situation. And if I stop there, it's not very hopeful. In fact, when you follow most religions to the bottom, follow most clearly scientific religions to the bottom, you end up with an unhopeful, it's almost impossible if you're being intellectually honest to not be a nihilist if you follow those, but not in the faith of Jesus. So faith is rational. Peter, when he comes to the tomb, verse two, he's running. Verse three, the other disciples started for the tomb. But here's uh, what I want you to see there in verse four. Both were running. The other disciple outran Peter. Peter reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips lying there, but did not go in. Now, if your Bible says looked or he saw the Greek word that is there is so strong because it wasn't like he just looked in and made a decision. The word for saw, looked in, is that is actually a Greek word called theorios, which is where we get our word theory from. It, to put it differently, it's just like he was theorizing. He was thinking. He wasn't just getting a glance at it. He's probably running a mental inventory of what's going to be said. So that somebody stole his bodies? How would they have stolen the bodies? These clothes are still lying here perfectly like, like they were before. The, the, these angels that are outside, like he, he is connecting the dots. And the thing about spiritual faith, the thing about Jesus' faith, is not only are we allowed to ask questions like this, we're encouraged to think. Most world religions, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, most Muslims are not encouraged to think. They're encouraged to just accept it and to do. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is look at the facts. Look at the, the ideology here. This is an eyewitness testimony. I mean, starting with the fact that faith is rational, if you're going to cook up a story to try to counteract Matthew 28, the Jewish leaders now making up a story that his body was stolen, and you're going to make up a story to refute that, in first century Middle East, in the Jewish culture, in the Roman culture, women had no right to not only to not vote or make decisions, women were not listened to at all. If you've watched any of the recreations of Roman Empire, you'll see that that's one of the things that happened that, by the way, you can look to Christianity as to where women and men are there in male and female. He created them, right? Like He put us in a place where it's not one is better than the other, but we are all standing on a level field. Point is, we're all valuable. You don't get a, you're not going to get that from science, by the way, because science tells us that it's survival of the fittest. 
Survival tells us that if you're not strong enough, you shouldn't survive. Like you can't make a case for that from evolution. You can't make a case from that from culture. But with Jesus, you can because the first person at the tomb was in that culture, the least possible credible source, a woman. You don't, if you're trying to refute, I mean, I don't know if you've ever gotten yourself busted when you're a kid and so you start telling the story, but you're telling it in a way that benefits you, right? I may not be lying, but I'm withholding truth, which same as lying. The only thing that could possibly explain this, and by the way, all four gospels talk about this, is the only, re- the only way to logically decide and to, to look at this is because it was a woman. And one of the ways that you can really look and know that someone's telling you the truth is if they're willing to give you the credible and the thing that doesn't sound credible, they're not whitewashing it at all. This was a rational faith. He's saying he's looking at it. He's doing the math on it because he's looking not for emotional truth, but for factual truth. Now, what's emotional truth? Does anybody know who Hassan Minaj is? Hassan, right after, especially right after 2020 and uh, the collective world, governments of the world lost their minds and everybody's trapped in their homes, this guy releases a Netflix special called Patriot Act. Now, Hassan talks a lot about what happened in his youth. He's an Indian uh, background, but with Muslim faith. And his stories are that he was, uh, that he was infiltrated by the FBI. Stories were that, uh, he, he, great stories. They sounded amazing live. And then there's one story where he talks about that he had, uh, uh, they, they got white powder sent to their home. And that white powder, uh, he, in his story, in this Patriot Act, you can go find it, talks about how it fell on his daughter. They had to rush her to the emergency room. And so the, the writer of The New Yorker is saying, this guy's story of being harassed, of being arrested, slammed onto the hood of his car, handcuffed by an FBI informant in California, and that then he was attempted to be murdered and that his daughter could have been, and the, the terror of it all. The, the, the New York Times remo- reporter asked this very important question, does it matter that neither of those things really happened? Because here's the thing, it didn't. He made it up. And what his response to this was when they were asking about it was, well, this is emotionally true. And in fact, the way he ends this piece is, when it came to his stage shows, he told me, the, listen to this, the emotional truth is first, the factual truth is secondary. That's what the culture, this guy has been platformed by Netflix, by every major nighttime talk show, which apparently nobody's watching anyway. But point is, this is not something like, it's silly, but he's not making this up. This is the culture in which he has been catechized, is that emotional truth is more important than factual truth. But that is not the gospel. Because when they get to the tomb, they see an empty tomb. They see a stone rolled away. They see, and we now have a factual account of that happening. The, all the credible, what seems like it might not be credible, this, all of it there. And we have a chance now to look at that and say, it is irrational to not believe this to be true. Fake news versus faith news. Faith news is I can look at these facts and say with confidence 
that I believe this to be a rational way to believe, a rational thing to accept. Because if you're following Jesus for the same reasons that Diplo follows Jesus, because he's an inspirational figure, right? Because he's practical, because he works for me. Jesus didn't say, follow me because I'm practical. He didn't say, follow me because I'm inspirational. You know who was inspirational? Hitler. Okay? Inspirational is not a precursor for whether or not we should follow you. He's saying, follow me because I'm true. Follow me because I resurrected from the dead. And if that's true, he's going to be practical. If that's true, he's going to be relevant, right? But if it's not, run for the hills because faith in somebody that lied about this kind of thing is an irrational thing. The faith of the world is irrational. The faith that Jesus is offering is biblical faith is completely rational. And it's humble. Humble because if it's just rational, then we could become intellectually arrogant. And many have. You become bold and and works-driven and all that, but it's not just rational, it's humble. And when I say humble, the reason I say that is, uh, verse nine, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now listen, this is a weird thought to me because almost every day probably of Jesus's walk on earth, he told them what he's gonna do. I'm gonna die and on the third day, I'm gonna resurrect from the dead. This was so well known that Rome put guards in front of the tomb to keep him from getting out. They knew it. The Jewish leaders knew it. Mary, Martha, the disciples, they had all heard this, and so they're all coming to the tomb on the third day, finding an empty tomb, and their first thought is, someone stole the body. I'm going to... So this is not a thus saith the Lord. This is a thus saith the Darren. Um, I, I want to pr- just pontificate what I, why I think maybe that they missed it so much. Because inside of the disciples and his followers, you can find two different kinds of followers. Okay? There were those who were, uh, let's say, liberationists. Okay? They wanted, uh, the, the problem that they saw was that there's an oppressor and the Messiah we need is one that will overthrow the oppressor. So in other words, the big problem in the world is not my sin. The big problem in the world is uh, everybody else's sin. If I can just throw over the oppressors, then everybody will be fine. On the other hand, there were the moral teacher ones. Like he's a great teacher. He's crushing it with teaching. And so they viewed him as this great moral teacher, right? And you can you look in this, you can see that between the disciples, right? Between Simon to Peter to, you can kind of start to figure out who was who in this group. But, and but by the way, on the surface, both of those seem completely different than the other, right? It's almost like in our modern world, far right, far left, they seem completely different, But at the core, underneath it all, is the same thing, which is pride. Because on the moral teacher side, it's like, okay, if you just tell me what to do, I can do it. 
Just give me the, the playbook, tell me what I'm supposed to do, and I'll do it. Moral teacher, that means that I can be prideful in this because I can handle this. I can save myself. On the other hand, with the liberationist, the pride is just show us which hill to charge, give us a sword, we're going to do it. Again, that's pride. They didn't know he had to resurrect. Maybe it was because they were devastated because the moral teacher was gone and they didn't have the person to tell them what or how to do anymore. And on the other, the liberationist side, they didn't have the guy with the sword anymore. Both of those leave you in such a hopeless place that maybe that's why everybody else was looking at it and believing, you know, maybe not believing, in fact, it says they didn't believe, they just think he's going to come steal the body. It wasn't like they believed that he was going to resurrect. It's that the government believed that the disciples were going to steal it, so they're going to stop it. But these disciples who should have known and should have believed didn't. And I think it's because not... Jesus came to save you from your sins, not from your society. And it starts there. He had to resurrect, had to die had to resurrect, didn't choose it to be a nice guy, didn't choose it just to display his love, he had to, because if he didn't, then you can't be liberated, right? If he didn't resurrect, then I can't be good. Not without Jesus' resurrection, which was now that, and by the way, the resurrection in the sense of the gospel is that once the sacrifice has been offered in Exodus, Numbers, when you see all that, if God accepted the sacrifice, the purity of the lamb, all those things, then their sins were forgiven for another year. Jesus' resurrection was a sign that his sacrifice was accepted. He was perfect. He was blameless. He didn't speak a word. All those things resurrected. And because of that, I'm saved. So when I say faith is humble, whether it's the secular Sabbath, whether it's Hassan, Minaj, it is about in that world, me being good enough, following through, making it happen. I can do enough chanting. I can do enough laying around in a sauna and chanting things. And if I do this long enough, I can achieve this consciousness. Follow that for 10 years and report back on where they are at the end of 10 years, which is right back where they started. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm asking you to do at all. I'm saying, I'm here not to give you a good example. I'm not here to just be a good teacher. I'm here to save your butt. And your humility, my humility requires me to say, it's because I need a savior. The problem isn't the oppressor, the problem is me. The line of good and evil doesn't go through groups of people, it goes through every individual heart. And that's why Jesus came to seek and save you and me, seek and save the lost. Faith is humble, faith is rational, and faith is hopeful. See, if humility is simply believing the truth about myself, and I believe that's what the best biblical definition I've found, the truth about myself is that I am hopelessly wicked, that I am hopelessly lost, and that without Christ, I remain that way. But I'm not without Christ. And that's what Mark was saying. My identity is not hopeless. My identity is not wicked, but not because of what I did, but because of what he did. And Mary shows that here. I want to show you this uh, 
she, Mary Magdalene, remember, seven demons, Luke chapter eight tells us, she had seven demons in her. If you've ever been around a demon-possessed person, all right, they can mess up your village in a hurry. They'd be throwing stuff, they'd be railing around, they'd be screaming at the kids and scaring people. We see that in scripture a couple times. Some of you have seen it in real life when you travel to developing nations. Seven demons that were delivered from her. She's the first one at the tomb. And when she gets there, she recognizes, she hears her name called because she's beginning to receive the truth that the Jesus she was looking for, it's why she didn't recognize him. She's looking for a moral teacher. She's looking for a liberationist, but she found a savior. She didn't recognize him. But when he said her name, oh, you are him. You did resurrect. And she's beginning to know why. So thinking you've said that he's the gardener, right? Uh, but listen, he says this in verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I used to think that meant that Jesus' body had not been to the Father, so he was in a place where if she touched him, that she could die because of his perfection and his holiness. I don't know if anybody else has heard that or thought that or maybe even taught that, but Matthew 28 throws that out the, war, out the back door because the women, it says at that point, Mary and Martha bent over and they touched they touched his feet. So it's not that, it can't be that. Here's what commentators say. I've just learned, I'm gonna teach you something I just learned this week and I borderline got Pentecostal on a Saturday morning. <laughs> the word there for hold on to him is actually way more accurate than touched him. Because what it means is that she grabbed on to him and she was holding tightly to him. She didn't wanna let him go Again, she lost him once. She wasn't going to lose him again. Okay? Now think, see if you can smell what I'm stepping in. Because he says to her, don't hold on to me, right? Don't hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. For just a few moments in history, the entire global church was one person. It was Mary Magdalene. She's it. And what is she doing? She's holding on for dear life. She doesn't want to share him with anybody. She wants to keep a hold of that because she doesn't want to lose him again. She doesn't want anybody else to get to him. She's, and he's saying, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. You see, when he ascends to his father, right now Mary in his human form, could only hold on to him one person at a time. But when he ascended to his father, it says that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will indwell each and every one of us, will baptize every one of us. And because of the Holy Spirit, Mary, being the first to be told this, knows what we get to know, which is that we all get to hold on to Jesus now. Because he ascended. In John 10, uh, 28 through 30, Jesus talks about that Jesus, listen to this, no one can snatch them out of my hands. You, you are so safe with me that no one can snatch you, Brittany, no one can snatch you out of his hands. He said that about Jesus, and then in verse 30, he said that about the Father. Jesus ascending to the Father tells us one thing. It is no longer about how tightly I can hold on to Jesus because it doesn't matter. He's holding on to you. That's what matters. You don't have to hold on tightly to Jesus. He's holding on tightly to you. 
No one can snatch you from his hands. If it was about me holding on to him, many, 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 many things can snatch me away from my hands, but nothing can snatch you away from the hands that created the universe itself. And you and I, just like Mary, are safely in those hands. And if you question for a moment, remember that the hands of Jesus, there's only one thing in heaven that's man-made, and that is the scars on Jesus' body. And on that body are holes in his hand that prove to you that he loves you so much. Nails couldn't hold his hands because he has the power to escape from that, which means that he can hold you and nothing can snatch you from his hands. That's the hopefulness of faith. It's rational. We don't have to suspend our logic for this. We don't have to suspend our, our, our humility. We have to embrace humility, admit that we need it, and know that it's hopeful. I am saved. I am now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But before I stepped into that, I was worthless and wicked and awful and evil and all those things. And Jesus saved me from that and transferred his righteousness to me. He transferred my sinfulness to him. And look, you guys have heard this week after month after year. Some of you have been here a long time. But maybe today that'll slip into your heart. I don't know. Have you cried lately when you realize just what Christ has done for you? Have you ever, like Spurgeon, talked about, I can't hardly pray this without weeping over it because it's so amazing. It's so amazing that I give them eternal life. They're not going to perish nobody. It's not like me trying to hold on right to the helicopter in the movie, like Tom Cruise or whatever. Like I'm trying to hope that I get to heaven. It's Jesus holding me. And just like he pulled Peter out of the waves, he's pulled you out of that chaos as well and is taking you on a journey with him as one of his children. And that's amazing. So when Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had see, said these things to her. Listen, this is, I'm going to land this plane with this. Jesus holding on tightly to Mary. Now, there are two stories that could be told about Mary Magdalene. Demon-possessed, loud, obnoxious, scary, all the things you would expect from a demon-possessed person. And you've got Mary, the one who followed Jesus, the one, look, I don't know where the dudes are, but you tell you who's running to the tomb is the women. They ones had the courage to go see Jesus' tomb, Okay. So you got women at the tomb, and that's Jesus holding on to her in that moment. And my question for you and for me is, are we going to be like Mary and take this news that we see at the tomb and run to others and tell them the good news about how it Jesus did for you and for me? It's the only appropriate response that now I am in the presence of God. I have access to the Father. I see his face. And there's, I think the word seen is like four or five times in this passage. John saw and believed. Mary told what she had seen. Peter saw. Once you see what God has done for you and received and accepted this, it's not fake news, it's good news. Now listen, if the Washington Post was going to write an article about Mary Magdalene, what do you think they would write? This loose woman. Fake news. She was demon-possessed. 
fake news. It's fake news because it's incomplete. If Washington Post was writing an article about Abraham, there's a story of Abraham the philanderer, Abraham the coward, Abraham the not really crushing it as a husband guy. And there's Abraham the courageous, Abraham who went to a world, to faith, to, to, to play a country he didn't even know. He followed Jesus. Which story do you think Washington Post is going to write? You know what I love about the Bible? Is it writes both stories because both are true. But when Abraham, listen, Abraham believed and it was counted unto him as righteousness. The enemy, just like the New York Times, is going to write stories about your life that only focus on the negative. Those are true, but they're incomplete. The other part of it is the redemption side. Let Jesus write that story about your life when you believe, when you follow him. Now it's the story of Darren, the, the not great uh, guy, the, the white trash, redneck kid that was, I mean, I, well, there's lots of stories, right? You've heard most of them. You can write that story. Wouldn't be untrue. It's just incomplete. And by the way, incomplete is another way of saying not true. What is the story for your life this morning? Because Jesus wants your story. He wants you to, let me phrase it. He knows your story. He wants you to know your story, which is who you are in Christ, not who you were before. Those other things, he doesn't forget them because we need to remember them because it keeps us humble, but it also gives us the courage to go tell other people, which is, I need a savior and I have one. Don't just need it, I have one. And so do you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you giving us a faith that's completely rational, giving us a faith that's completely humble and hopeful. We're so grateful for that. I pray that those words come alive in our hearts today, that my brothers and sisters, if there's any homework at all, they're going to go home today thinking about writing down who it is that you introduce us as when you think about us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.